0: Oh, live and recording. I, I might go and get my Kit Kat. No, I won't get my Kit Kat because that's just rude. It's you like four minutes to decide. Uh, welcome to a happy pricing podcast sans Ben because Ben is on holiday. Uh, but I am joined by the lovely Annie and the wonderful Kieran. Not because they're going to necessarily talk to you about pricing strategies, but we are going to be talking about the stuff that maybe stops us from actually executing those pricing strategies well. Kind of think about whether it's entrepreneurship or understanding how to price well, it kind of tells us a lot about ourselves. And so we can think of pricing as a spiritual journey. And we're going to connect that to the passions that uh, Kieran and Annie have around the Enneagram. and. I want to try and smush those two things together because I'm really you know, really loving the pricing stuff that I'm doing with Ben. I'm really fascinated by the enneagram stuff that I've been learning from Kieran and and more recently Annie. Uh and I want to see how these those things connect. Uh and from a rather than just telling you about frameworks, we're going to just tell you stories and 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 so our own sort of experiences with pricing and with the enneagram and with the stuff that comes up for us. And then hopefully that will be of some use to to those of you who struggle with working with money and working with prices, particularly if you're a solopreneur, an entrepreneur, a freelancer, consultant, coach, basically someone who has to go and talk to people and say, can you give me some money? Can you give me this much? And you go, oh. so anyway, that's the scene. But before we kick off, I, I thought it'd be useful to just, for each of you to just intro yourselves a little bit just give a background as to who you are uh, and your curiosity about this conversation you know what's yeah what's uh, alive in you about this conversation
1: great thank you Carlos uh, pleasure to be here And so I am Annie Hanekom and I have been working in the world of people dynamics and how we relate to each other and how we relate to stuff and very importantly, how we relate to ourselves for probably the last 20 years. And so anything around that, I find absolutely fascinating and energizing. The Enneagram as a, a gateway into that, I don't want to call it a typing tool or an assessment because it's so much more than that. It's an ancient tool, but it's... It really is such an interesting lens, and that's all it is. It's just a lens. It's not everything. It's not the all, and I think that's an important point to make. But the lens to look through um, is such an interesting way to think about this. And I think one thing that's important to say also up front, because I think this is an important way to think about this, is that you will find yourselves in every story that you hear There'll be parts of you in all of them um it's certainly we have one story and that's it and we all come at it from our unique angle you will hear yourself in all of it um maybe more strongly in some stories than others um but certainly that's the fascination of this and so i think that this topic is so powerful and so rich because it's not about pricing it's about you <laughs> and our relationship to it and so i i yeah really yeah. delighted to be here
2: so thank you I am a lifelong musician and all of my work revolves around the voice. So as well as working with community choirs and university choirs, I also work with people to help them connect who they are with what they're saying and how they're saying it. And I think for me, the Enneagram stuff is, uh, a—I loved what you were saying about the lens and it not being everything. Absolutely. I have also found it an incredibly valuable tool in that work, for me to deepen that work, not just for myself, but to deepen that work I do with other people. And when I think about myself through the lens of the Enneagram and, and, and my type structure, how I, how I perceive the world, how I experience the world, it's fascinating to me how my perceptions towards money have changed in quite fundamental ways. I spent most of my early and late 20s working in the art sector, a traditionally quite underpaid sector here in the UK. It's full of internships, it doesn't have high salaries, and therefore you're constantly working with people who don't have an expectation of being paid. Lots of freelancers who are singers, instrumental musicians, orchestral musicians, who don't have an expectation, but all believe strongly that musicians and and creative artists should be paid fairly. And I've grown up with a real fire in my belly around that. And yet I've still found this interesting resistance that has come up for me whenever I've been working for myself, which has been for for most of that period of work, rather than working for an organisation. And I'm really interested in exploring this, this resistance towards receiving money, things that we do, particularly things which have, uh, I guess, what people might say as a slightly more esoteric outcome, something that is more artistically or creatively driven, or to do with a a spiritual dimension, and how we connect those elements, which have, I believe, absolute and true value for people with the receiving of money and being receptive to getting that money.
0: Uh, I think that leads us nicely into the second topic that has in my mind as a com- uh, an exchange that i was seeing on the whatsapp group being apologetic about pricing
1: i even think as you say that uh carlos and again i'd love to be challenged on this but there is an apology around money in so many of us for different reasons and i think that's that's what's interesting here but uh certainly if i speak for myself so i'm a, a type two and sx2 on the enneagram and so that's kind of the helper has such an externalized view. And what comes of that is being other referencing. And so your sense of who you are, your sense of value, your sense of contribution is all by reference to others. What have they said? What what is their perception of me? What do they think? How do I feel in the presence of? And so you can imagine that when you do having a pricing conversation, the apology around, oh, I've got to ask for money for something, which I so generally am am, am wired. My worldview is around offering and and helping and now I'm asking for money like there's a massive apology that sits behind that and then a problematic relationship to push back around that because oh now what do they think and how am i seen and am i taking the mickey here and 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 all sorts of stories whatever those might be and so the apology around it certainly is very up for me and the many clients that i work with that are are uh, identify whether type two or predominantly feel their home sits there and their preferences and how they, you know, are just in the giving space to other, attaching a monetary value to that just suddenly becomes tricky. And so the apology then can lead down very different paths of um, wanting to negotiate too early or compromising or starting the conversation on the back foot without being very clear. And what I would say is unapologetic, where Certainly, I've seen that in in other types, and and interestingly, in my work, I've I've often talked about there's a type the type eight, uh, the active controller, as being unapologetic in general, very clear, very front footed, strong pair of hands. The conversation is clear and unapologetic. And yet, Karen, I know that you've even challenged that to say it might look that way, hmm. but it's not necessarily that. I'd love to hear your view on that.
2: I would love to ask you a counter question first, though, if I may. And it's just That's about perfect. this thing about receptivity and twos, because twos are often seen, I think, by people first reading about the Enneagram as the people that want to give everything but find receiving challenging. The idea that if you receive a gift, you need to give a gift almost of equal or or more greater value back again. And I wondered just how that dynamic worked with regards to you giving the service or giving coaching and receiving money for that.
1: That's been a lot of my work, certainly. And that's how the Enneagram has been such a powerful tool for me is A, to be very clear about what's that little voice about recognition for what I do. Because if it doesn't come, man alive is that. That just raises all sorts of, yeah, stuff. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Let's just leave it at that. Um, And I've almost been able to link that to, well, actually, fair trade. So actually, if there's a fair trade, then that feels right. And so that's the recognition. And so I've had to work with that on uh, and recognizing that actually someone making that contribution financially is potentially that matching. Um, And so it's been a really important thing for me because it's enabled me to see worth, not by way of relational capital, but actually, you know, financially being very clear in that conversation. And I, I say that also because I've seen how when I've done stuff pro bono, when possibly I shouldn't have, the value disappears in so many ways. Not to say pro bono work isn't super important and there are places in which it's absolutely the right thing. When you're doing it for not the right reason, Mm -hmm. there's all sorts of complexity that comes into that. And so Mm -hmm. certainly for me, the receiving and the way of going, this is exchange of value has been really hard, but important work for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I guess that's a point here and that actually, Mm -hmm. just to quickly shoehorn in there, no one said this works easy. (laughs) So we're going to have a lovely like, quite casual conversation Mm -hmm. and it all might seem quite straightforward, but the work, man, it's there's tension there
2: oh it's sure. tough absolutely this is the work I think of life for people that want to do it and the thing is it's not it's not the work that we have to do none of us have to do this it's, it's was a choice to do this stuff I loved where you got to with worth and thank you so much for indulging my curiosity about that for me the apology and you're talking about the apology manifests in an entirely different way Growing up, I look back and I realise that a lot of my association with earning money felt quite painful from what I witnessed with my parents and from what I witnessed with them when they needed to take over accounts of of my aging grandparents and and just all of the associated emotional baggage around managing money and managing budgets and, and that kind of thing. And they also had very, very different careers. My mother working in public office for the, the council and my dad being a freelance musician. So so wildly different. There are four and a seven, sexual subtype four and a social seven, just to pique your curiosity, Annie. So you can see a loud household. And I realise I grew up in a very eight referencing way. I, I am an eight and the eight word is lust. And indeed, whenever I did get money, whenever I got money from my grandmother, I would go and buy something immediately. And my sister would keep it in the bank account. It would it would accumulate. And I would feel this intense jealousy, this enormous rage that how did she get this money? And it's got interest. And I have nothing. I think the um, the most ridiculous story I can remember from childhood of kind of money story for me was this this game called Pigs Might Fly. Now, some people on this call that know me know that I am a big pig enthusiast. And this was a game advertised in the 90s. And I became obsessed with this game on television. And I I wanted to buy it. It was 30 pounds, huge amount of money for me as as an eight-year-old. And I saved up my money. I bought this game and I cannot express the bitter disappointment with how, how poor the game was, how poor the experience was. And I just remember sitting there having completed one playthrough and all I could think about was the loss of the bunny and how I felt inferior and this pain. And I realized this is all part of this long narrative I've had to do with expenditure and and the sense of losing money. And I think it speaks very keenly to my my self-preservation, eight need of satisfactory survival which is really about making sure you have everything you need to survive. And, and for me, as I've expressed to Carlos <laughs> in a practical way, this means when there's an offer on moisturizers, I'll be buying as many as I can put in the basket at this discount rate. It doesn't matter if it's £300. As long as I'm getting a discount, I, I feel there's an efficiency. <laughs> it's the same with you know, chili oil, whatever it is. It fills the cupboards and I accumulate the, the material things and it's just a fear of things running out but of course it's kind of born from this this strange relationship with with pain I think quite early on and, and money and having money and and associating with the pain and also with others having things I didn't.
0: At the beginning Annie you you mentioned that um, there's elements of each of our stories that we will resonate with and but we might relate to in Ooh. different ways and I definitely picked up on This feeling of if I receive, then I'm going to have to give. The way Kieran put it, I think I might have to give back and maybe even more. So nearly kind of it's owing aspect of receiving and giving in that exchange. I think my point, and I am less um, knowledgeable of my type and what it means. And so I'm going to be talk purely about experience rather than a reference to how I how it relates to the type 6 that i'm attracted to at the moment but i i i, I can remember being very le- less apologetic about pricing particularly when we were running our agency and also when i was a freelancer i was very much of the thinking that ha- what's the least that i can do for the most that i can charge and it it's and it might relate to a question uh, later that henry asked uh, that we might tackle how do you know what is fair exchange but I had this real kind of sense of, like, if I can do it in 15 minutes and I'm charging them for an hour's work and they're happy to pay for that, I'll do it in 15 minutes. I'm not going to spend an hour on it. I'm just going to do it as quickly as I can. Uh, and so there's this – I don't know how, how that relates to the type aspect of things, but there's something there around I was i was very much around needing to see what's the most I could get for the, less, the least I could do. And then one of the conversations I had with Kieran before – Um, doing this podcast was this around this idea of how much money is enough and one of the things we were talking about is what's enough and i remember always need my slam like this i'm needing to a buffer it's an arbitrary number i have no idea how i've got but there's always like this i got this figure that has to be in the bank and as soon as it starts to shrink i start to get a bit worried and a bit scared and when it grows or when it gets bigger i become a bit more generous and a bit more. Loose, let's put it that way, with with the money, and so yeah, it's it's uh, it's uh, again a different aspects of some aspects resonate in terms of like oh, there's the uh, less about apology, but more about oh, what do I have to give back? Why do I have to give now in terms to earn this match money? And then there's something around survival. It's like what's enough to survive, and how do I, and what happens when that survival budget or that amount starts to shrink how that affects uh my ability to do things
1: i think context there absolutely matters right um you know because we are if we're in survival mode that's going to bring up a very different context than if we there's enoughness in general and um i also know that Certain types, and I—I uh, I hope you don't mind me referencing it, Henry, because I happen to know that you're a nine, um, and that money is a really tough one uh, because there's potential conflict, there's potential disharmony, and that is just almost a well, what, whatever it needs to be, the stepping back from, and so I guess that's apology in a different way, but certainly uh, this is just a piece of advice I had from a mentor, which just has. I've used in many contexts, not only pricing, but it's turn inwards. Does it feel right? Do you feel that you are overcharging? Do you feel that this is really stretching it to a point that you're not, you, you, you're feeling uncomfortable with that? Or are you feeling hard done by? Because actually, you know, you're discounting or you're compromising. And so if that, either of those of those ends make it a difficult conversation. And so it's got to be your sense of what what feels right in this scenario for this client, for this piece of work, knowing the value and the worth that I am bringing and the work that I am putting in. And that might change according to your context um, because it's also got to be weighed up with what's gone before and, you know, what does that bigger picture look like? But certainly it's when you're knowing is that it feels right The conversations you can have in a very clear way, I think, are are ones that then allow that person to to feel right and for the conversation to go the the way it needs to go. But if you've got that sense of apology on either end, it makes it tough, Uh, and that's when we get a bit unstuck. It's certainly been my experience.
2: makes me go back to this apology question you had before and how for much of my freelance life I've approached pricing when something has felt difficult and emotionally challenging that this should be worth more but usually after the fact and at a point whereby I've already locked in some pricing or I've set a fixed budget for something so it goes into this kind of resentment deficit against myself which the client isn't aware of but this deficit builds and builds and builds and and again I think this is another part of the pain narrative for me And because of that dynamic, I've realized that when I work with clients that I enjoy the time with, my inclination is to charge them less because I don't feel this buildup of a painful deficit. And one of the most interesting things for me, really only in the last couple of years, has been thinking about, isn't this the work that's worth more? Isn't this work, this deeper work, where I can be at my best because I'm not feeling resentful and therefore providing much greater value and much greater support and awareness to the people I'm working with. Surely this is the work that I should do more of and and has greater value. And the work to which I'm resistant, I should just stop doing.
0: So starting off from the perspective of happy pricing, one of the things that we talk about is, is value is in the eye of the customer. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. A fair price is what they say is a fair price they're willing to pay 10 times than what you thought, then that's what it's worth to them. And and it's about, we talk about having conversations with your customer to understand what kinds of numbers they're comfortable to work with. And then also for them to understand, all right, if I work with you, what value could that create in terms of what does that connect to into the rest of my business, into my life, whatever it is. And another way of talking about it, if i don't work with you if i don't do this work what would be the cost and this is a a way to explore at a very subjective level what is it worth to them because it it's it's always going to be based on their ability to pay and how much pain or pleasure they're going to be getting from working with you so that's one side of the equation the other side of the equation which i i, I want to i definitely feel this is important is how I feel about accepting that amount of money, which is what I was hearing Annie Annie say. And if I don't feel comfortable, then it's going to be hard to back up a price that they may, you you may hear, oh yes, I'm going to pay you five grand for an hour's work. But if you feel like, you're never going to step into that confidently and say, okay, it's five grand. You probably say, oh, it's probably maybe two and a half or two. And then you realize, actually, I could have charged more And then you kick yourself for doing that. I don't well again maybe this is a conversation we have another time but it's how, how do you work through that how do you work with that because i believe there's a moral aspect an ethical aspect and there's a personal belief aspect and that's it's like this whole thing like i'm enjoying the work i'm loving the work and so why am i charging that much money mm-hmm. i should charge less because i'm getting something out of it and and related to what annie was saying in terms of the feeling if you if you if you are really receiving the money with joy and I assume that's connected because you love you love the person that you're going to work with, you love doing the work, then actually the eventual outcome is going to be more uh, easily attained. Because the thing is, the outcome most of the time, and maybe with coaching is different, but the outcome potentially could be the same thing. But how it the experience of getting there may be different. But ultimately, what customers are paying for, what they pay for a lot of the time is the outcome. Will you get me this? number of clients, will I be able to stand in front of a load of people and talk? Will I be able to lead this team without feeling scared? You know, if I get to that place, that's great. How you get there, in a sense, if they paid up front or if you if you already set the price before, how they get there doesn't really affect how much you charge in the end. It's just whether they refer back to you, whether they enjoy the experience, whether the stuff really sticks in their heads. So really, sorry, just narrowing down to this idea, like Mm. the pricing bit is you generally at the beginning of the engagement before you've even done any work. And so because of that, there's their perceptions of what is fair exchange, your perceptions of what you're willing to receive. And so fair, in my eyes, is so subjective, dependent on the two players in the conversation
1: and you need to believe it's fair right that's the starting point and that and that's it right and i i had such a powerful conversation and i'll never forget it um i was with a sales director i was newish in the role and we were presenting something around a, it was a, a long-running program and there was a price on the table and it was punchy but i knew that the the quality was high and so I was flanking him and the client said, Oh, well, actually I've had something offered by someone and it's almost half the price. And he did it didn't even take him a split second to respond to go, That's great, and I'm sure they are worth every penny. And it was so powerful because he just didn't back down at all. He was like, yeah. So well and, and,
0: and, and that there is the really interesting thing, is like, what is the price of confidence? Because he was very confident. So the, if a, as a customer, as a client, it's like, okay, if, if, if in their mind, if they're in their own history and the way they look at things, any kind of uncertainty or doubt is a massive risk. Even if it's just kind of uh, just presented, as, it isn't even a fact. It's just like, oh, there's an element. They might pay for that. You know, they will not go to someone else because I, 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 not having doubt is of value to me.
1: Yeah, and, and this and what's so powerful there depends, on, I guess, we, actually, in any kind of service industry, it's Khalsa Mahan who said, How you sell is a free sample of how you solve. And so, my experience of you and the exchange of setting pricing, negotiating, designing stuff, that exchange is a sample of what it's going to be like to work with you. So, make it solid, be confident, you know, don't bullshit, don't be trying to pull all over their eyes, do it as you would really work with someone, then in a very front foot way. And so, Henry, again, to your point around exchange, it's less about the actual price than, you're, it, that, than you know, you've, you've got to set that, but you almost want to set that and then move on. Uh, because if you're constantly negotiating on price, I think it, it gets confused and we keep holding on to that. And I think setting pricing is a really, really useful model and you can tweak around it. But then the conversation becomes about something else. Uh, mm. What do we offer for that? Mm. How do you negotiate mm. with what you do within that pricing mm. that Pricing holds uh, Can be really powerful.
2: I love that story, Annie. And it made me think about my experiences of working for other people and selling their products, which I've never had any problem with at all. And I've always enjoyed the fact that the KPI was just 90 something percent without me having to do a thing about it because I would just be myself selling their thing. It almost didn't matter whether I thought that this was a particularly great thing. If I thought that this worked for them, I could tap into my own energy for that. And yet when selling uh, through experience of many years, selling myself, because that's what it felt like, that confidence evaporated completely. And my journey, my work has all been around tying together this thing of worthiness to tie it back to what you were talking about to start with actually really allowing myself to feel into my worthiness. And, and for me, that's about the the vice to virtue conversion, the and it, go to take it slightly back, Enneagram roots, because it is about the the move into innocence from the eight. It's the move into openness, into receptivity, into that oddly vulnerable place where actually I'm self-accepting. And through that self-acceptance, I can be confident in actually saying this has value. And I've decided this is the value that it has. And that's really, that's non-negotiable then. That is just, it is what it is. It is, that is the feeling in that moment.
0: Yeah, there's, um, this is where for me, and I feel we can go over so many topics. I think there's where I'm drawn to now, given the conversation we just had, is this, is this whole exploration about the money stories, you know, talk about the pricing. That's for me, it feels like there's another angle. Because it, it the money stories is very much about us. And I think with Annie, we're talking about the feeling and when you're talking about the confidence you your thing, this is about us. And when it comes, from my perspective, when it comes to pricing, it then becomes about them. Mm. Uh, how we stand, as long as we're confident, and it was Henry, as long as you're confident in your work, then it's about who you want to work with and who will, you know, how much they will pay will always depend on their own contexts, you know, and and who, and the kinds of people you want to work with. So that is this all then starts leading into marketing and niching and understanding your customer. And you can't be, a, you're not going to sell to everyone. You won't, not everyone will buy from you. So a whole other world of things that we could tackle. But it feels like here at the core, before you even start thinking about who and how much, is like, what is it that's holding me back? And how can I also be aware? Because another thing, a conversation I've had with Henry is like we can we these stories still come up even as, as no matter how many times we deal with them and talk about them, they still come up. But I feel through these conversations, and maybe we can do some more of these, just be having more awareness of them, maybe more habituated to the feelings they bring up, rather mm. than just pushing them away and denying. Like this is coming up again, and I'm going to have to deal with it. Before we leave, before we close, I think it will be useful is to any final remarks, thoughts, reflections, epiphanies, concerns, questions that you want to leave the listener with.
1: Yeah, I feel like I've got all these little statements, but they've been so powerful for me. So I will share another one, which um, this was so useful for me because I think in the context of pricing, why is it that we might have discomfort? Why is it that we dancing around this question and so often I think it's our fear of losing a client or of chasing a client away of not getting the work and what it, the thing is you're not going to get all the work and so don't let pricing be the reason for that or something that delays that decision and so the statement that uh, my mentor always was very clear on with me is he said a yes no no will feed you for life and maybe will starve you forever. And we are just going for the maybes? Because, oh, maybe, maybe if I discount, maybe if I keep the conversation going, maybe. Can you imagine if you had to hand up babies? You don't have time for that, right? You know, you want a yes or a no. So be clear, have your pricing, move on in whichever direction that takes you. There are loads of people who need your work, loads of people who need your value. Go find them.
2: I think for me, the thing that feels alive is identifying that that discomfort in the body. When that discomfort arises, the question is simple. It's really, what is the, what is this thought? What is this belief about money that is manifesting in such a way in my body to stop me expressing myself, stop me expressing myself confidently? Because that is the thing that is cutting off the ability to, to actually speak to the truth of I have this value and here is the value you will give me in return for working with me. So I think identifying whatever that process is internally, and I do think the Enneagram is a fantastic tool for doing just that, not for fixing it, but for knowing what the thought is and then being able to relax it when you recognize the signals that say that thought's coming up again. And I know that that actually takes me away from what I want rather than toward, and by relaxing that structure, I can be myself.
0: What's... Um... That both of you made me think of now is this I like this idea of you know find the yeses and the no's and ditch the maybes and then the phrase that's coming up from my mind now after you say talking Kieran is like how do I get paid for being me and this whole idea of like turning up just doing the stuff that I really enjoy and then being able to find the yeses and the no's it's very clearly run through the no's and forget the maybes about the people who who will pay me to be me because it creates value. And you know, of course, it's articulating what is the outcome I create. But to be able to turn up to every single uh, engagement, just fully happy that I'm in the right place with the right people, getting paid the right amount of money. Uh, and so there's the tactics and the strategies, but I feel this is kind of like, okay, how do I remove all the fear of rejection? Because some people I can't work with and some people I'm perfect for. Thank you, both of you. I really, really appreciate your time. And at the last minute, you sound like, Pulling out a bat signal, saying, "Who's gonna come and talk to me about happy pricing?" <laughs> I really, um, really appreciate you taking the time to do that. Mm. So until next time, take care. Thank bye, you. bye, everyone.
1: Thank you. Bye.